All right, we are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here doing The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. We are at section, um, this section is called The Racial Contract Norms and Races, the Individual, Establishing Personhood and Superpersonhood. Subpersonhood. Subperson and sub personhood on page although if you ask a conservative any minority asking for rights would probably be referred to as a super personhood (laughs) (laughs) that's true uh on page uh 53 and is this this isn't is this still part of the introduction no we're in chapter two the details were in the the details. details okay details all right so this is chapter two um section the racial Contract norms and races the individual, establishing personhood and subpersonhood. Paul, do you want to take her away? I sure will. Alrighty. In the dis- disincarnate political theory of the orthodox social contract, the body vanishes, becomes theoretically unimportant, just as the physical space inhabited by that body is ostensibly theoretically unimportant. <laughs> Uh, but this disappearing act is just as much an illusion in the former as in the latter case. The reality is that one can pretend the body does not matter only because a particular body, the white male body, is being presupposed as the somatic norm. Uh, what is somatic? I don't know. Like the muscle relaxer soma? <laughs> Holy shit. Kind of relating to the body, especially as distinct from the mind. So that is kind of interesting. I wonder if that's where the muscle relaxer name Soma comes from. Okay. Relaxes your body. Mm-hmm. The reality is that one can pretend the body does not matter only because a particular body, the white male body, is being presupposed as the somatic norm. In a political dialogue between the owners of such bodies, the details of their flesh do not matter since they are judged to be equally rational equally capable of perceiving natural law or their own self-interest. But as feminist theorists have pointed out, the body is only irrelevant when it's the white male body. Good call. Even for Kant, who defines persons simply as rational beings without any apparent restrictions of gender or race, the female body demarcates one as insufficiently rational to be politically anything more than a passive citizen. Similarly, the racial contract is explicitly predicated on a politics of the body which is related to the body politic through restrictions on which bodies are politic. There are bodies impolitic whose owners are judged incapable of forming or fully entering into a body politic. The distinct intellectual antecedent here, of course, is Aristotle, who, in the politics, talks about natural slaves, who need to be distinguished from those whose enslavement is merely contingent, a result, say, of being captured in battle. But writing in the epoch of the non-racial slavery of antiquity, Aristotle faced an identification problem in picking out these unfortunates. The racial contract basically seeks to remedy this deficiency, establishing a relatively clear-cut line of somatic demarcation between possessors of servile and non-servile souls. As earlier mentioned, the older distinction between Europeans and non-Europeans is essentially a theological one, developed in large part through the wars in the East and South against Islam, uh, Black Panam, both Antichrist and Anti-Europe, for the politico-economic project of conquest, expropriation, and settlement. This categorization has the disadvantage of being contingent. People can always convert, and if the schedule of rights is religiously based, it then becomes at least a prima facie problem, though not an insuperable, insuperable uh, one. I'm not 
And I was also going to ask, what is uh, uh, pain in? Yeah, no idea. Insuperable is is uh, a difficult a difficulty or an obstacle that is impossible to overcome. Is anybody who is a non-Christian specifically or generally a Muslim? Okay. It then becomes at least a prima facie problem, though not an insuperable one. To treat fellow Christians the way one can treat heathens in the city of God, as Hayden White glosses Augustine, even the most monstrous of men were still men, salvageable, salvageable in principle, potentially capable of being redeemed by Christian grace. The new secular category of race, by contrast, which gradually crystallized over a century ago or so, had the virtue of permanency over any given individual's lifetime. Drawing on the medieval legacy of the wild man and giving this a color, the racial contract establishes a particular somatotype as the norm. Deviation from which unfits one full uh, one for full personhood and full membership in the polity. If one is not always a natural slave, one is at least always a natural non or second class citizen. Uh, it's kind of crazy to think that if you put somebody like Aristotle uh, in chattel slavery or even possibly now, I think they'd be shocked by the racism of it all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really do. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's just weird that we, that we had such uh, a regression in modern history. Well, not really. I guess it's kind of a necessary channel for capital to exist is that you need to need to make sure that you have a, a consistently exploitable um, race although uh, i don't mean to connect the two just inevitably yeah no i i i hear it <laughs> not it saying one is more important than the other or whatnot but right um, if one is not always a natural slave one is at least always a natural non or second class citizen in the gradual transition from religious conceptions to racial conceptions jenning notes the gulf between persons calling themselves Christians and the other persons whom they call heathen translated smoothly into a chasm between whites and coloreds. The law of moral obligation sanctioned behavior on only one side of that chasm. But I mean, yeah, so that's basically, um, you know, ties in with uh, obviously with everything that we talked about thus far, the idea that um, the non-whites were considered non-humans. So when I was listening to... Uh, that Rev Left episode that I sent you, and he's talking about, um, Brett's talking about uh, materialism versus uh, idealism. He's talking about how if you look at the founders' writings, just from an idealism standpoint, it doesn't uh, make sense, he says. He says there's this contradiction because they're saying all men are equal and, uh, and yet they have slaves. And I thought to myself, well, actually, if you've read Mills, you know that it wasn't a contradiction in their minds because they didn't view these people as men. And so uh, I just thought that was, that was fun and interesting. The other thing I think it brings up is that just the complete intellectual bankruptcy of bringing in the like, well, humans have always had slave arguments and other people were able to overcome it. Why, you know, like blacks have had a hundred for, you know, 200 some years, which is not that many, but, you know, like 150 years. How can it still be blamed on that? And I think it's it's so obvious that it's the racial distinction, like all other classes of or generally slavery throughout the world of antiquity didn't follow you it wasn't like you were a slave so i mean it's just they were completely removed from society due strictly to race uh and that was 
so much more damaging than anything that had preceded it. So to try and compare it to other historical precedences, uh, this is a great explanation of why that's ridiculous. Right. Maybe yeah. not ridiculous, but why it's it doesn't uh, work. Doesn't pan out. Yeah, totally. Uh, all right. So philosophically, one could distinguish moral slash legal, cognitive, and aesthetic dimensions of the racial norming. Morally and legally, as I stated at the beginning, the racial contract establishes a fundamental partition in the social ontology of the planet, which could be represented as the divide between persons and subpersons, untermensch. Untermenschen. Untermenschen. Personhood has received a great deal of philosophical attention in recent years because of the rival in Kantian and natural rights, moral slash political theories, and the relative decline of utilitarianism. I wonder, uh, maybe he'll say something about it, but I wonder what has replaced utilitarianism in recent times in the in the academy Uh, yeah i'd like to know too i know like i like the basis of utilitarianism i understand that the further you expand on it the more easy it is to like logically pick around or um but i do uh, what do you mean by pick around well it's just like if you expand it long enough uh or there are a lot of situations where I'd have to look at it, like look it up to be more specifically, but I do know that utilitarianism is not, you know, like the further. I think it'd be hard to talk to a doctorate in philosophy that wouldn't have like some huge holes to pick with utilitarianism. Like I'm not quite at that level of understanding, but I'm at a level of understanding that like I enjoy okay. framing things in a utilitarianism uh, thought, but I wouldn't like die on a hill for utilitarianism. Like it's like how I like to frame things. But in like a destiny, like you could put an extreme uh, logic okay. case up where I'm not sure utilitarianism would like stand through every time. Like, how do you actually uh, equate letting 20 people die to save 100 sort of deal? Like that sort of stuff can be kind of picked up. Like what if, yeah, that sort of shit, like unrealized potential things of that nature can get wrapped up into utilitarianism that makes it a little harder to defend okay. in extreme cases, okay. whatever. I could be totally wrong, but that's my understanding. Well, I mean, obviously it's got some sort of issue if, if the Academy is not into as into it as they once were. Right. And like I said, for my own personal thing, I like to think about things in a utilitarian framework. Uh, it helps me in a lot of smaller case decisions. Yeah, me, me too. Me too. All right. Um, so, utilitarianism... Utilitarianism puts morality on the straightforward basis of promoting social welfare, the greatest good for the greatest number. But it is vulnerable to the charge that it would permit the violation of the rights of some if overall social welfare were thereby maximized. By contrast, Kantian and natural rights theories emphasize the, uh, the sanctity of individual persons whose rights must not be infringed even if over overall welfare would be increased ideally then we want a world where all humans are treated as persons so the notion of a person becomes central to normative theory the simplified social ontology implied by the notion of personhood 
is itself, of course, a product of capitalism and the 18th century bourgeois revolutions. Uh, Moses, Moses Finley points out that inequality before the law was typical of the ancient world, and medieval feudalism had its own social hierarchy. Kantian personhood emerged in part in opposition to this world of, of ranked and ascribed status. The hierarchically differentiated differentiated human values of plebeian and part, and partition, plebeian and partition um, of serf, monk, and knight were replaced by the infinite value in quotes of all human beings. It is a noble and inspiring ideal, even if its incorporation into countless manifestos, declarations, constitutions, and introductory ethics texts has now reduced it to a homily, deprived it of the shattering political force it once had. Um, but what needs to be emphasized is that it is only white persons, and really only white males, who have been able to take this for granted, for whom it can be an unexciting uh, truism. As Lucius Outlaw, what a weird last name, underlines, European liberalism restricts egalitarianism to equality among equals. Oh, okay. That's a good way of, yeah, yeah, good way of putting it. Egalitarianism to uh, equality among equals, and uh, blacks and others are ontologically excluded by race from the promise of, in quotes, the liberal project of modernity. The terms of the radical contract mean the non-white subpersonhood is enshrined simultaneously with white personhood. And it's those kind of things that, like, I have to remember more that if you are a white person and you grew up in a rural area and you didn't have an opportunity or a desire to read about history, it might be really easy for, as he put it, for it all to be an unexciting truism. Like, it just doesn't even... If you have no concept of, the, like, historical societal makeups, anything of that nature, uh, I guess it could feel like everybody is coming from the same place, I guess. Like, it is become that entrenched in the feelings of what a white person should have that it's just impossible for them to even notice like to notice the society that they live in i suppose like unless you can see those things in person it, it just would maybe never click in your head just and i'm not like trying to make an excuse but just trying to understand right, no i know how all of these motherfuckers are just like there's no racism we have the same rats we have the same and it's just like maybe i guess if you just don't have any historical context or knowledge well, no, I think I think it's less about no historical knowledge, but what historical knowledge you have, right? Yeah. Uh, and there are plenty of those type of people that could tell me all kinds of things I know nothing about as far as, like, specific, um, like, Civil War battles and stuff like that. That's true. You know, what's important is not that you have historical knowledge, but what historical knowledge you have and how that historical knowledge is framed, you know? Yeah. So, uh, where am I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in order to understand the workings of the policies structured by the racial contract, I believe we need to understand subpersonhood also. Subpersons are humanoid entities who, because of racial phenotype slash genealogy slash culture, 
are not fully human and therefore have a different and inferior schedule of rights and liberties applying to them. In other words, it is possible to get away with doing things to subpersons that one could not do to persons because they do not have the same rights as persons. Insofar as racism is addressed at all within mainstream moral and political philosophy, it is usually treated uh, treated in a footnote as a regrettable deviation from the ideal. But treating it this way makes it seem contingent, accidental, residual, removes it from our underst- removes it from our understanding. Race is made to seem marginal when, in fact, race has been central. The notion of subpersonhood, by contrast, makes the racial contract explicit, showing that to characterize things in terms of deviations is, in a sense, misleading. Rather, what is involved is compliance with a norm whose existence it is now embarrassing to admit. So instead of pretending that the social contract outlines the ideal that people tried to live up to, but which they occasionally, as with all ideals, fell short of, we should say frankly that for whites, the racial contract represented the ideal, and what is involved is involved is not deviation from the fictive what does that word mean like fictitious fictive okay from the fictive norm but adherence to the actual norm thus i pointed out earlier exceptionalism was the rule the racial contract as a theory puts race where it belongs at the center stage and demonstrates how the polity was in fact a racial one a white supremacist state for which differential white racial entitlement and non-white racial subordination were defining, thus inevitably molding, white moral psychology and moral theorizing, which is what we were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, you were just saying with the, um, well, it wasn't a contradiction. Right, yep. Um, this is most clearly the case, of course, for blacks. The degradation of racial slavery, meaning, has has often been pointed out that for the first time, and unlike the slavery of ancient Greece and Rome for the medieval Mediterranean, slavery acquired a color. But for the colonial project in general, personhood would be raced, hence the concept of subject races. The crucial conceptual divide is between whites and non-whites, persons and subpersons, though once the central cut has been made, other internal distinctions are possible. Varieties of subpersonhood, uh, begin parentheses, savages versus barbarians, as earlier, earlier noted, end parentheses. Corresponding to different variants of the racial contract, expropriation, slave, colonial, thus Kipling's native could have been far, <clears throat> could have more than one face, half devil and half child, so that white or, yeah, so that while, for the expropriation contract, some kinds might simply be exterminated, as in the Americas, Australia, and South Africa, for others, as in the colonial contract, a paternalistic guidance, as in colonial Africa and Asia, might lead them, as minors, at least partway to civilization. Uh, minors with a O. But in all cases, the bottom line was that one was dealing with entities not on the same moral tier, incapable of autonomy and self-rule. Negroes, Indians, and Kafirs 
cannot bear democracy. Kaffirs? I don't know. Uh, sorry. Um, cannot bear democracy, concluded John Adams. Think of Tarzan and the phantom she and Sheena. White kings and queens ruling the black jungle, laying down the law to the lesser breeds without it. Moreover, the dynamic interrelation of the categorization meant, as Hegelians would be quick to recognize, that the categories reciprocally determined each other. Being a person, being white, meant definitionally not being a subperson, not having the qualities that drag one down to the next ontological level. In the ideal Kantian world of the raceless social contract, persons can exist in the abstract, in the non-ideal world of the naturalized racial contract. Persons are necessarily related to the subpersons, for these are identities as contrapuntal ensembles and contrapuntal I don't know. Man, Mills usually doesn't make me look up ten words. Of or in counterpoint. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, for these are identities as contrapuntal ensembles, requiring their opposites, with the secondariness of sub-persons being, has said phrases it, paradoxically essential to the primariness of the European. Where slavery was practiced, practiced as in the United States and the Americas, so that a sustained relation between races obtained whiteness and blackness evolved in a forced intimacy of loathing in which they determined each other by negation and self-recognition, in part through the eyes of the other. In his prize-winning book on the evolution of the idea of freedom, Orlando Patterson argues that freedom has been generated from the experience of slavery, that the slave establishes the norm for humans. Part of the present-day problem in trying to assimilate black Americans into the body politic is the deep encoding in the national psyche of the notion that, as Toni Morrison points out, Americanness definitionally means whiteness. European immigrants who came to America in the late 19th, early 20th centuries proved their assimilation by entering the Club of Whiteness, affirming their endorsement of the racial contract. The long-time joke in the black community is that the first word the German or Scandinavian or Italian learns on Ellis Island, fresh off the boat, is... Nigger. Thank you. Uh, black American, African American is oxymoronic, while white American, Euro-American is pleonastic. Whiteness is defined in part in respect to an oppositional darkness, so that white self-conceptions of identity, personhood, and self-respect are then intimately tied up repudiation of the black other. No matter how poor one was, one was still able to affirm the whiteness that distinguished one from the subpersons on the other side of the color line. That's so on point, and we've talked about that before, yeah. but it, it can't go overlooked uh, how important it was for... Italians, the Irish, Eastern Europeans, whoever, once they got here to be like, no, you know, fuck the black people. And obviously yep. you see that, I think, in its clearest form or, or very clear form in the race riots uh, during the uh, Civil War in New York, right? Yeah. Where the, the Irish, you know, lynched dozens of black people, you know. And it's, yeah, and uh, you know, America really just embodies the skin tone difference as being a, a huge thing because you could do it. You could come and be a white European gang. As long as you're ganging up on black people or you're ganging up on Asians, you're good to go because they are that much more distinguishable. And it's, mm -hmm. it's fucking, and it's, it's so sad because just that concept of, I like to think about myself as a nicer person, but I also have to understand I've always had this privilege. It's just so sad that, especially with groups like Italians, 
where there was kind of a physical difference that instead of fighting for equality, they just fought to get into the the realm of equality. They weren't like, it is fucked up that you, that we got treated like this. It's like, it's fucked up that we got treated like these races when we clearly shouldn't be associated. Yeah, I, well, I think it was an um, easier battle for them. You know, it's easier to 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 you know join in right. the the group beatdown than try to break it up. You know that, and they came from colonialist countries where they already have that mindset of like, mm-hmm. well, wait, we were colonizing too. What the yeah. fuck are you doing? Like, yeah. we understand. Well, and, and I don't think it was obviously that uh, like conscious, but yeah. Yeah, um, but I mean, I would just assume that they came from countries where they already had somewhat defined the structure of humanhood. Maybe not to the extent that America did with chattel slavery, but uh, they weren't foreign ideas. Right. I'll go next. And uh, OK, there's also a cognitive dimension that is likewise continuous with uh, with the Aristotelian tradition. Uh, historically, the paradigm indicator of subpersonhood has been deficient rationality the inability to exercise in full the characteristic classically thought of as distinguishing us from animals which for him was understanding jesus <laughs> not jesus but christian well aristotle was um i thought he or was... no no oh my god i'm con- sorry dude i am confusing aristotle with um thomas aquinas Yes, 100% Aquinas. Yes, my bad, dude. My bad. No, you're good. Okay. Uh, for the social contract, a rough equality in men, uh, in men's cognitive powers, or at least a necessary ground floor, a necessary ground floor capability of detecting the imminent moral structuring, structuring of the universe in uh, parentheses, natural law, or what is rationally required for social cooperation is crucial to the argument. For the racial contract, correspondingly, a basic inequality is asserted in the capacity of different human groups to know the world and to detect natural law. Subpersons are deemed cognitively inferior, lacking in the essential rationality that would make them fully human. In the early theological versions of the racial contract, this difference was spelled out in terms of heathen unwillingness to recognize God's word. One early 17th century minister characterized Native Americans as having little of humanity but shape, ignorant of civility, of arts, of religion, more brutish than the beasts they hunt, more wild and unmanly than that unmaned wild country, which which they range rather than inhabit, captivated also to Satan's tyranny. In later secular versions, it is a race uh, what is the, the incapacity? Raced incapacity. It is a raced incapacity for rationality, abstract thought, cultural development, civilization in general, generating those dark cognitive spaces on Europe's map, on Europe's mapping of the world. In philosophy, one could trace this common thread through Locke's speculations on the the incapacities of primitive minds, David Hume's denial that any other race 
but whites had created worthwhile civilization, civilizations. Kant's thoughts on the rationality differentials between blacks and whites, Voltaire's polygenetic conclusion that blacks were a, were a distinct and less able species, John Stuart Mill's judgment that those races, in quotes, in their, what is that, nonage? Nonage? What is nonage? I'm guessing it's going to be just like, the fact that they don't exist with a society oh it's just the uh, just a period of immaturity okay okay those races in their nonage were fit only for despotism the assumption of non-white intellectual inferiority was widespread even if not always tricked out in the pseudo-scientific apparatus that darwinism would later make possible once this theoretical advance had been made, of course, there was a tremendous outpouring of attempts to put the norming on a quantifiable basis. A revitalized craniometry claims about brain size and brain uh, corrugations. Yep, brain corrugations. Oh, the whole smooth brain thing. Okay. Uh, brain uh, choreo- corrugations. Brain corrugations. Right, yeah. Uh, measurings of facial angles, pronounce, uh, pronouncements about, uh, what's that? Okay, dolosophalic, I uh, can't even say it, dolosophalic and uh, br- brachiocephalic, brachiocephalic heads. Uh, re- Recapitulationism. Fuck, that's a fucking word. Recapitulationism. Recapitulationism. And finally, of course, (laughs) IQ theory. The feature um, punitively uh, uh, correlated with intelligence varying, but the desired outcome of confirming non-white intellectual inferiority always achieved um shit dude i don't know um okay so i was just gonna say that i think it's funny that um even today you still have this debate about um you know uh what they call race realism you know and fucking um black people iq averages and all this nonsense and it's crazy that it just still persists uh, just because I can't remember for sure, but even people who I have a lot of respect for the way they think, uh, I think somewhat buy into this of like being like, well, it's not that there's not an IQ difference between races, it's that it's not that important. And it's like, well, I'd be willing to bet that it has almost zero to do with the racial correlation and that we should probably stop using that as any assumption for IQ. But that's just my take on it. So silly. Okay. The implications of this denial of equal intellectual and co- uh, cogni- cognitizing ability are various. Since, as mentioned, it precludes cultural achievement, it invites the intervention of those who are capable of culture. Since it precludes the moral development necessary for being a responsible moral and political agent, it precludes full membership in the polity. Since it precludes veridical veridical perception of the world, it even precludes, in some cases, court testimony. God, that's so fucked up. So fucked up. And, and, and what is uh, veridical? 
uh, truthful. Okay. I'm just doing that because I'm guessing because of uh, an other in Spanish uh, verde can mean truth is why I'm guessing that's what it means. I think that comes from a Latin root too. Yeah, that would be yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, the word truthful or okay. coinciding with reality. Okay, and I think if I remember correctly, uh, that even and I might be wrong, but I feel like during the Salem witch trials, they had slaves oh, testify yeah. stuff that were like, "No, I'm yep. pretty sure yeah. this didn't happen," and they were just like, "Oh well, you black people don't know what you're talking yeah, about." Yeah, I, even I think like the main, the beginning main case involved the slaves. <laughs> I say that because it ties into American Horror Story, one of the great historical biopics of America. But, there you go. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure. Oh, <laughs> uh, where? Okay. Oh, that's it. Precludes a uh, veridical perception of the world. It even precludes, in some cases, court testimony. Court testimony. Slaves in the United States were not allowed to give evidence against their masters, nor could Australian Aborigines testify against the white settlers. In general, over a period of centuries, the governing epistemic principle could be stated as a requirement that, at least on controversial issues, non-white cognition, non-white cognition, has to be verified by white cognition to be accepted as valid, and it is permitted to override white cognition only in extreme and unuseful circumstances. Large numbers of consistent non-white witnesses, some kind of disorder in the cognizing capacities of the white epistemic agent, etc. Further complications involve a shift from straightforward biological racism to a more attenuated cultural, in quotes, racism, where partial membership in the epistemic community is granted based on the extent to which non-whites show themselves capable of mastering white Western culture. An example of that, in my opinion, is the whole they're so articulate line. That's been a, a problem with studying all kinds of things for white people. They just like assume that their intelligence is the only measurable amount. They, uh, historically, uh, they've assumed their intelligence is the only measuring kind. Um, so it's fucked up on all kinds of scales. Yep, totally. And, uh, it, you know, thankfully, in our lifetimes, we've gotten away with that. So we understand all kinds of intelligence much more deeply. Totally. Um, do you want to finish uh, the section out for us? Sure, sure. Finally, the norming of the individual also involves a specific norming of the body, an aesthetic norming. Judgments of moral worth are obviously conceptually distinct from judgments of aesthetic worth, but there is a psychological tendency to conflate the two, as illustrated by the conventions of children's and some adults' fairy tales, with their cast of handsome heroes, beautiful heroines, and ugly villains. Harmonious Hotink, man, lots of cool names, that outlaw <laughs> person, old Harmonious Hotink, argues that all societies have a somatic norm image. For never having encountered the somatic term before, holy shit do a lot of people use it. Harmonious Hotink argues that all societies have a somatic norm image, deviation from which triggers alarms. And George Moss points out that the Enlightenment involved the establishment of a stereotype of human beauty fashioned after classical models as the measure of all human worth. Uh, racism was a visual ideology based upon stereotypes. Beauty and ugliness became as much principles of human classification 
has material factors of measurement, climate, and the environment. The racial contract makes the white body the somatic norm, so that in early racist theories, one finds not only moral, but aesthetic judgments, with beautiful and fair races pitted against ugly and dark races. Some non-whites were close enough to Caucasians in appearance that they were sometimes seen as beautiful, attractive in an exotic way. Native Americans on occasion, Tahitians, some Asians. But those more distant from the Caucasian somatype, paradigmatically blacks, Africans, and also Australian aborigines, were stigmatized as aesthetically repulsive and deviant. Winthrop Jordan has documented the repelled fascination with which Englishmen discussed the appearance of the Africans they encountered in early trading ex expeditions. And Americans, such as Thomas Jefferson, expressed their antipathy to Negroid features. Benjamin Franklin, you know, good old Thomas Jefferson. Benjamin Franklin, interestingly, opposed the slave trade on grounds that were at least partially aesthetic as a kind of beautification program for America, voicing his concern that importation of slaves had blackened half America. He asked, why increase the sons of Africa by planting them in America, where we have so fair an opportunity by excluding all blacks and tawnies of increasing the lovely white and red? How the fuck? Yeah, it, it is cool that we take these statues down at this point, I think. <laughs> to the extent that these norms are accepted, blacks will be the race most alienated from their own bodies, a fate particularly painful for black women, who, like all women, will, by the terms here of the sexual contract, be valued chiefly by their physical appearance, which will generally be deemed to fall short of the caucasoid or light-skinned Caucasoid. Caucasoid. Like, freakazoid. Ah, caucasoid or light-skinned ideal. Moreover, apart from their obvious consequences for intra- and interracial sexual relationships, these norms will affect opportunities and employment prospects. Also, for studies have confirmed that a pleasing physical appearance gives one an edge in job competition. It is no accident that blacks of mixed race are those who are differentially represented in an employment in employment in the white world. They will, because of their background, often tend to be better educated also. But an additional factor is that whites are less physically uncomfortable with them. If we have to hire any of them, it may be thought, at least this one looks a bit like us. It's totally fucked. Totally fucked. Totally relevant for the year 2020 as well. Unfortunately. And possibly in the current climate, I just, you know, I mean, I know they couldn't legally get away with it, but I feel like the public tolerance of, of racism is, is on a much higher level than it was in, say, my childhood. Uh... I'm not saying that's for sure because I was a kid. For instance, just all the videos I see of, you know, white older Trump supporters in places like Palm Beach and shit like that, just shouting absurd racist things. I just, I don't recall. You know, that's always been a, a pretty good tenant for kind of the rural South, um, but for it bleeding into being visual representations of wealthy white communities, I, I just don't remember people being that comfortable. Well, I think, but I think uh, two things on that front: a, where where we lived, and since there weren't tapes, we didn't see it, and b, this shit wasn't in their faces much, right? There weren't people standing around with signs that say "Black Lives Matter." So well, they I'm not didn't saying have we're to... more racist. I just think it's become oh. more socially, uh, maybe not acceptable is even the right word, but noticeable. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It is more. Uh, it's more visible. Is is right. what I like. Would there say. was a time period like with Obama and stuff where in my ignorance, I was able to start to buy the narrative that maybe we're becoming a less racist country. And I can't even begin to pretend to think that right now. 
Uh, but once again, I never want to correlate what's happening in the world with my understanding of it. That's not uh, an accurate thing to do. Right. Totally. Totally. Awesome. Well, next time we will be starting um, the section on page 62 called The Racial Contract Underwrites the Modern Social Contract and is continually being rewritten. Um, all right. Uh, we appreciate everyone hanging out. Have a great day.